Good morning, Tomoka Christian Church. How are you? Man, we are so glad that you have chosen to worship with us today. Thank you for being here. This is the first time that I've been able to, to be up here with you uh, after the birth of my son. I get asked all the time, uh, hey, are, have you had your baby yet? And, or has your wife had your baby yet? Or, um, you know, it was a boy or a girl. First of all, I just want to give a shout out to Dr. Baldwin and her team who delivered my son and Dr. Baldwin and several of her team come to church here. So it's cool that my son was delivered by one of our own, right? So my son was born on September 5th. His name is Isaiah Jesse Indiana Hargrave. My wife said, this is the last one. So if you want to do something stupid, now's the time to do it. My father-in-law called my wife and he said, uh, hey, what's the name? And we told him and he's like, wait a second, aren't you guys in a year-long series on Isaiah? And she said, yeah, dad, but that had nothing to do with um, why we named him Isaiah. We've been thinking about this name for years. He's like, uh-huh. I'm just glad you guys aren't in a, in a series covering the life of Haggai. So after the baby was born, I'm, I'm, tell, I'm getting old, guys. I mean, I, to be a dad, I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and, and now a seven-week-old. I'm just exhausted. Um, we're not sleeping because the baby's not sleeping. Our two-year-old's not sleeping. I just said to my wife the other day, I was like, man, sweetheart, I, I just, I feel old. I feel worn down. And she said to me, she said, look, <clears throat> you're doing okay. She said, do you like James Bond? I love James Bond. By the way, who's the best James Bond ever, guys? Right, Daniel Craig is the right answer. So uh, she said, why do you like Daniel Craig? I said, because he's just kind of got those Hollywood good looks. He's kind of rugged. Man, he just, he just is really great. He, nothing ever goes wrong for him. He always keeps his cool. She's like, mm-hmm. She said, did you know that he just had a baby girl not too long ago? And I said, no. And he said, yeah, this is what he looked like after six weeks. <laughs> That's a true story right there. And all of a sudden I was like, well, I don't feel so bad about myself now. Hey, listen, we got a lot of work to do. When I read this passage this week that Joe had assigned to me, it rocked my world. I mean, when you read Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8, it is so earth-shattering what God wants to say to us today, what God wanted to say to the people of Judah. If you want to turn your Bibles or your mobile devices or whatever else you have with you today, uh, I don't know what else there could be, a scroll, whatever. Turn to Isaiah chapter 56. We are going to dig into this because there's so much here. Uh, and by the way, I told last night's group that... Um, there were three important things about last night. A, we were most important is we were celebrating the Lord's Day. Uh, B was my wife's birthday, so we all said happy birthday to my wife Erica. And um, by the way, say happy birthday to my wife Erica. All right, good. Uh, and C, Notre Dame was playing USC. I told him it'd be a short night. So uh, praise God that Notre Dame won over the evil arch villain of USC. Right? Did your team win last night? Man, it looks like many of you are fans of uh, Oklahoma State, or I, I don't remember who lost. Anyway, so let's get into this because this is rich, friends. Isaiah chapter 56, this is what God says to Isaiah 
to say to the people. This is what the Lord says. Be just and fair to all. Do what is and for I am coming soon to rescue you and to display my righteousness. Remember that word among you. Blessed are all those who are careful to do this. Blessed are those who honor my Sabbath days of rest and keep themselves from doing wrong. Right away. In this letter that Isaiah is writing to God's people, he says, just do what's right. Just do what's right. And this is such an important reminder to the nation of Judah. Remember, 200 to 250 years earlier, there had only been one nation of Israel that God had ordained as his people because they chose to follow him. But about 200 to 250 years late, earlier, Solomon dies, there is a split, there is a divide, and the one nation of Israel becomes two nations. The northern nation of Israel, or the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where we get the word Jews, right? Their Jews are from Judah. Well, they've had this on and off contentious, loving, whatever relationship, their cousins, right, over the last 200, 250 years. And Isaiah is reminding the people of Judah, listen, just do what's right. And it's a great reminder because the kingdom of Israel had not done what was right. They didn't listen to the words of the prophets that God had sent to them. And because they didn't listen to the words of the prophets and they continued to do what their hearts were leading them to do and they were idolaters and they walked away from God, eventually God allows his protection to fall away from them. And the Assyrian army, who was a horrible, horrible group of people, came in and, and took over the northern kingdom of Israel. And now God is saying to the nation, the kingdom of Judah, just do what's right. Walk in my ways. If you don't do what's right, then you're going to be in trouble. If you do what's right, you know, everything's going to be okay. And so he's telling them, just do what's right. And friends, this is so foundational. It's so foundational to the history and, and the tradition of God's people. Now, let me ask you a question. When he says do what's right, what does that mean? What is do? How do we define do what's right? Well, if we take that word righteousness, a simple working definition of it is being right with God. So when God says do what's right, what he's saying is be right with me, follow my commandments, walk with me, stay in line with the boundaries that I've given to you. And this teaching is sprinkled in from the very beginning when he called Abraham, just do what's right. All the way through the Old Testament. This is such a foundational, important teaching that 700 years after this letter is written, Jesus is speaking to a group of people uh, and a religious leader is there. And he says, Jesus, what is the most important commandment? Now at that time, the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses had unbelievably increased to 613 commandments that they said you needed to keep. There were positive commandments, things you, you were supposed to do, and there are negative commandments, things that you were not supposed to do. And so this leader is saying to Jesus, hey, what is the most important command? All these 613, I mean, he's trying to trap him, right? You tell me what is the most important. And this is what Jesus said. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Now, what he's doing is he's taking uh, them back to 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is called the Jewish Shema, which was such a foundational verse to the, all of the people of Israel and Judah. Uh, De- Deuteronomy chapter 6 is reminding them that they need to teach who God is to their children, that they need to love God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. Deuteronomy chapter 6 was put into a little scroll and put into a mezuzah on their door frames. And every time they walked by, they would touch that little scroll to remind them of that. Or they would say a prayer as they entered their house. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Teach these things to your kids when you're walking along the roads, when you're laying down at night. So he takes them back to the Jewish Shema. But then... We, re- we read, this is the first and greatest commandment. But he said, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what he does is he takes them back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which is also an important commandment. He says, the first and the greatest is to love God with everything that you are. The second is to love others that you encounter. So what is God saying is right? Two things. Love God. Love others. Love God. Love others. Now, as a dad of four crazy kids who act like their mom, I get this, right? I mean, there's nothing that breaks my heart like when my kids are fighting with each other. Why? Because I love them all. I don't have a favorite. Despite what they say, I don't have a favorite. I love all my kids. And anytime. One of my children is hurt or made fun of, it hurts me. And anytime my child makes fun or hurts someone else, it hurts me. Because I don't want my kids uh, to be mean to anyone or for someone to be mean to them. And if I didn't care about how my kids were treated or how my kids treated other people, I don't think I'd be a very good dad. But there's something more. To this text, right? God wants all of humanity to be his children. Now that brings up an interesting question. And you know, I like to have you um, interact with me when I speak because, well, really, I don't want you to fall asleep. So here's the question. I'm going to give you three, five seconds to answer it to the person next to you or pretend like you're talking to the person next to you if you don't like them, just so everybody else thinks that you're, you know, participating. But this is the question. Do you believe all humanity are children of God? (laughs) Okay. Now, listen. This is a tricky question. We are all God's creation, but we are not defined by whether God loves us or not. We are defined by whether we love God or not. So listen to these three passages of Scripture. It's going to make it clear for us. Ephesians chapter 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. You see, there's a clear delineation here in this text. Those who follow Jesus and those who do not follow Jesus. Just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. The commander of the powers of the unseen world. He has the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. Who, who used to live that way? All of us. Following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. 
by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. In other translations, it translates this word of, of, of God's wrath, just like everyone else. Romans chapter 8 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Who are the children of God? All who follow God's Spirit. So you have not received a spirit that makes you a fearful slave. Instead, you receive God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now think about that. To be adopted... As God's child means that there was a time that what? We were not God's child. Now we call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. 1 John chapter 3 verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are. And who the children of the devil are. There is a clear delineation between children of God and children of the enemy. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Now, this was a hard concept for me to understand. I, I was challenged on this. I, I always said all of us are God's children. All of us are God's creation. But only those who have the Spirit of God, who follow the Spirit of God, are God's children. Others are in the world. And we were all in the world at some point, and God adopted us into his family. So, we are defined by our choice to love God or not love God, not by whether God loves us, because God loves everyone. So let's circle back to this idea of doing right. In our society, we define doing right with the word morality. The definition of morality is how we view what is right and what is wrong. And friends, if you just take that even farther, and you'll see this in nations around the world. You'll see it through the nations uh, in the past of history. But how a nation views what is right and wrongs really defines who that nation is. That's part of the reason the kingdom of Israel eventually falls. Because their morality, their desire, their righteousness to be with God waned. So friends, it's no, it's not surprising that there's constant battles going on in the heart of every nation to see whose heart they'll be, whose people they'll be. It's no surprise that there's a culture war raging around us today in the United States to redefine a morality. In fact, sociologists call this phenomenon of cultural wars in a country of redefining morality as the demoralization of a culture. And he who defines the morality of a nation defines the heart of a nation. And friends, our heart, our culture right now is fighting really hard to change the way that we view moral issues in this country. What is abortion? What is marriage? What pronoun do you claim? What do we believe about sex outside of marriage? How do we feel about homosexuality? What about stealing? What about lying? You see, I get it. No one wants to be judged. No one wants to be told what they're doing is wrong. It's human nature to defend our actions. We don't want to be called out into the light because we don't want people to, to see the, the darkness that, 
resides inside of us sometimes when we follow our own inclinations. But what we figured out in this day and age and in this culture is that rather than submitting to the moral code that exists, which has been, it has its foundation in the bedrock of the Judeo-Christian values since the beginning of our, our country, it's just easier to redefine morality here. And as long as morality is feeling based instead of God-based, our standard of truth, what's right and wrong, will be forever changing and will become just like being tossed about by the winds and the waves. That's almost scriptural. And here's the problem, friends. A people cannot exist in moral ambiguity. We just can't. Morals can't be based on feelings. It must be based on truth, a firm foundation, a lighthouse to guide us through the storms of life. There has to be a point that we can look at when life gets crazy and say, this is right and this is wrong. There has to be something that is is steady and stable that we can continually go back to. Now, you may not know this about me, but I used to be a lifeguard. I uh, finished last in my class. I only lost three people. (laughs) Not really, not really. I just wanted to be a lifeguard at my church camp that I grew up at, Lake James Christian Assembly. And so um, in Angola, Indiana, and I'd go there and, and I just loved, you know, they worked us to the bone, but I loved being there at that camp. I grew up for 19 years at camp with my family. But um, while I was there, the lifeguards would take a swim every week or every couple of weeks from Lake James Christian Assembly to Pokagon State Park, which was about two miles and um, so every year after, my, after being 19, I would go back again and I would swim that, that distance to, from Lake James Christian Assembly to Pokagon State Park just to kind of prove that I still had it and that I was still alive and that, you know, I could still do it. So um, one year on my birthday, it was a beautiful uh, July 28th. It was beautiful, wonderful, really hot day in Indiana. It was like 67 degrees. And... Um, <laughs> My friend Jill and I were going to swim it and my cousin Matt was going to come along and he was going to paddle the canoe because you had to have a boat with you so that other boats would know that there are swimmers in the water. And so, I mean, it's just a gorgeous day. And we started out swimming. We got about a half mile and everything changed. The skies became dark. The wind picked up. The rain uh, was just pelting us, but it wasn't a vertical rain. It was a horizontal rain. You know what I'm talking about? It was raining sideways and um, lightning began to flash and and thunder began to roll. Man, that sounds like a song. And um, the wind was so strong. The waves were so high that my cousin, who's a big dude, he's strong, uh, was blown away. I saw him really digging into the water. But after about two feet, we couldn't even see him anymore. We were a half mile into our swim in this lake and we had no idea where we were. The waves were crashing over our heads. We saw speedboats flying back to their homes to get out of the storm. And um, my friend Jill started crying. I mean, you're in the middle of a lake, a two mile lake. You don't know what's going to happen to you. And to make matters worse, it's, I mean, it's first it seemed like a blessing. It stopped raining. But then it started hailing in Indiana in July. And it wasn't just little pieces of ice. It was large. I mean, it's hitting our heads and they were hurting. We go under the water to try to escape the, the hail. And, you know, we, we thought we might die. I mean, it was a legitimate fear of ours. And finally, the waters and the wind and the waves had pushed us closer to shore. And we could see a faint outline of one tree. And I said, Jill, Jill, I'm trying to encourage her. Swim towards a tree. Just swim towards a tree. 
And she said, okay. And so we're trying to swim. We're t- I'm trying to encourage her. I'm trying to, to help her. And after a while, I know that she's getting farther and farther away from me. And I said, Jill, you're swimming away from me. And she said, that's because you're not swimming toward the tree. Listen, friends, in our moral life, being right with God, there has to be a set point that we can look to to find our answers. It can't be shifting with the winds and the waves and the feelings of our culture. It must be fixed so that we can continue to have a standard of living that is right and wrong. Can you imagine if you went into the Sahara Desert? I don't know why you would go into the Sahara Desert, but maybe you would. And you were backpacking and then all of a sudden your GPS broke, your compass broke, and you found yourself alone in the Sahara Desert where everything looks alike for miles and miles and miles. And there's just sand dunes everywhere and there are dust clouds and sandstorms. Can you imagine being lost, trying to find your way to the edge? I mean, you would become so disoriented, you wouldn't know which way to go. There's only one way to find your way out of the desert. It's by at night looking at what? The North Star. And if you follow the North Star, it'll give you a direction point and you'll know where you're headed and you'll be able to find your way out. If you don't follow the North Star, though, the problem is you'll just keep walking in circles and you'll be lost forever. There must be a point, a set point to look to, to find our direction, to find our morality, to to hold on to a standard of truth that is right or wrong. Now, I'm going to step on some toes for a second, and I don't mean to. I'm not trying to be contrary. Just hear me out, okay? One of the things that I hate to hear is when somebody says, well, this is my truth. What's your truth? Or our truth. And here's the reason I don't like that. Isn't there only one truth? Now, I don't mind if somebody says, well, this is my point of view or this is my experience or my side of the story is. But by saying this is my truth and this is your truth, what we're saying is that truth is fluid. And that there's no standard base foundation for truth. It's whatever we feel like or what we've ever experienced in that moment. And that's why, friends, the enemy will stop at nothing to persuade us that truth is negotiable because darkness hates the light. Listen to this in, first, uh, in John chapter 3. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. So you know the best way to fight the light is? Redefine it. Change the truth, reshape it, or simply don't allow it. How in the world do you do that? The same way you boil a frog. Anybody ever heard this illustration? You try to boil a frog, guess what? The frog's going to jump out of the, the pot. But if you take a frog and put it in room temperature water and slowly bring the water to a boil, the frog, because it's a cold-blooded animal, won't perceive the danger and will be eventually cooked to death. Now, that's an illustration that people have used for 100 years. The problem is, is it was disproved about 20 years ago or something like that. So, a different illustration is, how do you change a heap of sand? 
one grain at a time? At what point does it cease to be a heap of sand sand, and just become pieces of sand? You see, the way that you change morality, the way that you change viewpoint is slowly over time, making it imperceptible by compromise, by allowing things to go so that you don't even recognize who you are anymore at some point. But friends, just do what's right. 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 That's God's challenges to us this morning. But this passage also has incredibly good news for us. It's that there is hope for the hopeless. Verse 3 says, Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, The Lord will never let me be part of His people. And as I read this text this week, I was almost shocked by what Isaiah was writing. Because God is telling Isaiah 700 years before Jesus that someday He is going to make a way for the Gentiles to be part of His family. By the way, who are Gentiles? Gentle people. No, I'm just kidding. Gentiles are anybody that's not a Jew. So if you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile. And he's saying 700 years before Jesus, I'm going to make a way for everyone to be part of my family that wants to be part of my family. And I thought to myself, this is so amazing. I mean, we know that in the New Testament that this is a truism, right? In Acts chapter 26, Paul is talking to a guy by the name of King Agrippa. And King Agrippa says, tell me your story. And Paul tells him all about his life, that, that he was a Jew among Jews, that he was taught at the highest level of education, like the best schools. In, in other words, it would be like he went to Indiana University. <laughs> he was passionate about persecuting the early church. He was the one who organized the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He's the guy that held the jackets. He's the guy in charge. He went around Jerusalem killing Christians and imprisoning Christians and breaking families up and tearing down churches. And he was taking his murderous temperature, his murderous fervor in going to Damascus. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, saw an incredibly bright light. He saw the glory of Jesus in that light. And one of the things Jesus says to him, according to Paul in Acts chapter 26, is, Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes, so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That was Paul's mission. Why did he pick a Jew among Jews to be a missionary, an ambassador to the Gentiles? Maybe it's because he knew God's word and he could teach people well. We also see in Acts chapter 10, Peter, before the church had begun accepting Gentiles into the church. They had only accepted Jews. And one day there was a Gentile that God was sending to Peter's house. And Peter goes out onto his roof and he has a vision from God about what is clean and what is unclean. And God just says, listen, everybody's welcome. So we know that in the New Testament, this is part of the story. But to find this all the way back in the book of Isaiah was shocking to me. And so I started thinking to myself, is there another time, an earlier time maybe, when when God gives hope to the Gentiles, well, I found my answer through Paul when he writes to the church at Rome. He says, concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who are not my people, I will now call my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. And 
Then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. And so we know that Hosea talked about it. He was just a little bit older than, than Isaiah. But he may have talked about it even before Isaiah did. And what Paul is doing is he's taking the, the, the early church readers back to this ancient writing of, of the prophet Hosea. And Hosea is telling a story and there he says because of people's idolatry and because they didn't want to follow God or be right with God anymore, he was cutting them off and that they would no longer be his people. And so this no people because of their duplicity and idol worship would just have no heritage, they would have no hope. But in the midst of this writing, Hosea says, and by the way, Hosea was married to a prostitute who had become unfaithful to him. And so as a, as a sign of what, how God could redeem that in a marriage, but also with his people, God says there's still hope. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is arguing that the Jews became a no people with no heritage, but God brought them back into the fold and declared them my people again. And then he goes on to say, or to postulize, is that the right word? I don't know. He continues to think out loud as he writes. Can I say that? I don't know. Therefore, the Gentiles who were a no people who had no covenant with God could become children of the living God. It's a staggering thought. And then a decade or so after Hosea is writing this, Isaiah is writing right here, and God speaks even more plainly to him when he says that he's going to make a way for the Gentiles. You see what God is doing? He is making a way for those who are not called children of God to become children of God. Why? Because as... We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, 9. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Would you turn to the person next to you and say, being perishable is not a good look on you? <clears throat> now, I love this. Verses 3 through 7. And don't let the eunuch say, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says. I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than the sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord who serve Him and love His name, who worship Him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, and who hold fast to My covenant, I will bring them to My holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in, the house, in My house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Anybody know what a eunuch is? Don't shout it out. Anybody know what an... Eunuchs were boys and men who were castrated by their masters so that they could be counted on as loyal lifetime servants. Why? Because a eunuch would never be able to have a family, nor would they ever be able to create a dynasty. You could have them serve in a king's harem without fear because they wouldn't desire a relationship with any of the king's um, folks in their harem. This passage also shows us great heartache that eunuchs must have had because in that day and age, no family equaled 
no future. And God incredibly says to a people with no future, in me, you'll have a future. And to a people without a family, God says, you can be part of my family. And to the outcast, and to the condemned, and to the abused, and to the addict, and to the abandoned, and to the widow, and the orphan, and to the sinner, and the saint, Jesus says continually, come home, come home, come home. There is a place for you. There is a place of rest. You can be part of something greater. You don't have to do this life alone. You're not by yourself because you are my child that I created and I desire a relationship with you and I want you to be part of the family of God again. But it's not about whether I love you or not. It's about whether you love me or not. And I'm sitting here waiting for you, begging for you to come and be a part of my family. Won't you just come home? Because friends, there is hope for the hopeless. Why? Because everybody's invited to the party. We turn to the person next to you and say, your invitation's in the mail. <clears throat> and so is the check. Verse 8 says this, For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcast of Israel says, I will bring others too beside my people Israel. And Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus tells this amazing story in the New Testament. It's a story of a banquet that's being held. And he invites all of his friends to come to his son's banquet. And as soon as the invitations go out, man, he starts hearing back, Hey, sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it. I got, you know, plans uh, for work. It's not going to be able to be there. Hey, sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it. But, you know, I got family issues. You know how the in-laws can be. Hey, sorry, I'm not going to make it. Insert excuse. And the banquet host says to his servants, listen, we are going to celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. So you go out into the byways and into the alleyways and into the streets and into the cornrows. If you're living in Indiana, you go and you bring back the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. You bring back the outcasts, the people that no one wants, because we are going to bring them to be part of this feast because I've got something great in mind. And if those other folks don't want to come, then they don't have to come. But anybody who wants to be here, who doesn't feel connected, who feels lost, who feels disenfranchised, who feels hopeless, who has a past, who has a broken heart. There's a place for you. I'll leave the light on for you. Come on in, because we are going to celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells a story of a guy by the name of Ernest Hemingway. Anybody know who Ernest Hemingway is? I think he, didn't he sing Margaritaville or? But they both live down there, right? He may have known Jimmy Buffett, I don't know. You may not know this about Ernest Hemingway, but he come, came from a very devout evangelical family, but he never experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. And he lived his life uh, without moral parameters. In other words, he was kind of a wild guy. And through, throughout his life, Hemingway spiraled into what one writer described as a mire of a graceless depression. But in one of the short stories that he writes, we get just a glimpse, just a glimpse of the grace that maybe he wished that he could have in a family that maybe he wished he could be reunited with. 
It's the story of a Spanish father who decided to reconcile with his son after his son had run away to Madrid. And the father, in a moment of of remorse, takes out this ad in the El Libro, which is a newspaper, and it said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And when the father arrived at the marketplace, at the square where he had hoped to meet his son, what he discovered was 800 Pacos waiting to be reunited with their families. Because here's the deal, friends. All of us want second chances. All of us want to be invited. All of us want to be a part of something greater than ourselves. All of us want to know that our life has value. All of us want to know that it's not too late, that we can have a do-over, that there's something that God has for us. All of us want to know that our life is not trash, that God don't make no junk, to quote the poster on my kindergarten wall when I was in school. All of us want to know that God wants to reunite with us, that he wants to love us, that he cares about us, that there's still a better tomorrow than there is today. All of us want to know that there is a home that we can find rest in. And so, friends, won't you come home? Won't you come home? Won't you come home? Because Jesus redeems, he redeems, he redeems. He wants to take what's been left on the trash heap of life and bring it back in as a treasure. He wants to take what has been broken by you or by the enemy and he wants to reconstitute you, re-energize you and put you out for his good works. He wants you to know your brothers and sisters. He wants you to be connected. He wants you to pray for each other. But most importantly, he wants you to know that the end of this frail life, that we are going to step into heaven with the Father and with the Son and with those who who have gone on before us and we are going to live life and be a part of the party that he has planned for us. So friends, won't you come home? Won't you come home? Won't you come home? Today, if you need to make a decision to be part of that family, it's not about whether God loves you or not. It's whether you love God or not. You can come right over here and make a decision. If you're struggling because Lord knows in our culture and in this world today, there's a lot of struggles. Come over here. Let us pray with you. If your marriage is in jeopardy, let us pray for you. If you're an addict, let us pray for you. If you're an adulterer, let us pray for you. If you are struggling with whatever, if you're dealing with depression and anxiety, let us pray for you. Because God takes the broken pieces of our life and he makes beautiful mosaics. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. Lord, we know that even when we can't, you can And so, God, today, would you give us hope? Would you fill us with inspiration? Would you help us to know that we aren't lost? Would you help us to stand on the truth? God, help us to decide this day who we will serve, you or the world. You or the enemy of humanity. Lord, help us to have a North Star so that we can determine what's right and wrong. And we know that as Christians, you've given us the Holy Spirit to guide that. You've given us your word to set it in our hearts so that we would know that. God, help us to take a look inside of us to determine what's our desires and what are your desires. And God, would you set us on fire and create a revival inside of us, inside of this church, inside of this community, this nation, and the world. Because there is no one like you. There is no hope without you. Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.